0: Perfect.
1: Welcome back. My name is Alex Adams and uh, we have some exciting news uh, about our podcast. We've actually rebranded and now we're called Behind the Play. Um, Our podcast will look at sports through analysis and interviews uh, of people in the sports world. And I'm very excited for our special guest this week, uh, uh, Vivek Jacob, to come on and talk about his career in sports journalism the raptors some tennis obviously um we should we're going to talk about uh the departure of Roger Federer from the game of tennis um Vivek has worked for the athletic sportsnet yahoo vice and now is re- working for cbc sports raptors.com complex
2: um i hope i'm not missing anything i'm just trying to well. so uh how is it going no, you got all of them. Very impressive. And thank you for the intro. It's very kind of you. i um, happy to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. You've had some cool guests. So mm-hmm. uh, excited to chat sports with you. I know we kind of go back and forth from time to time on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Enjoy uh, those just, chats. Uh, how I, Well, I didn't know you until today, but uh,
1: through Twitter, we've had many exchanges, mostly about tennis, I would say, uh, yeah. basketball. Um, obviously, we're both kind of sports heads and uh, yeah and I just wanted to kind of get started. Where did your kind of love of sports come from?
2: um it probably started with tennis because okay. my dad used to play and so um that was something that he encouraged me to play initially and then um funnily enough they kind of kept cricket away from me, okay, cool. Um, because they figured like having an Indian background that if Mm -hmm. I learned about it, that I would just be addicted to it. And (laughs) and, like, they didn't want my uh, studies to suffer. So Mm -hmm. um, eventually I did discover cricket um, Mm -hmm. when I was about nine or 10 years old, but it started with tennis. And then uh, the first uh, FIFA world cup, uh, I saw was in 1998. Wow. So um, Wait, were you like at,
1: like at home watching it or like you went there?
2: No, no, no. no I was at home watching. So it, like that was my first taste of World Cup action. Um, like I would have started just getting into soccer a couple of years before that. And mm-hmm. um, I actually had a couple of friends who were already like more into soccer than me and were Manchester United fans. And that's kind of how I became a Manchester United fan. In the golden years, yeah, yeah, and and so like watching that World Cup like took it to another level, um, and then uh, you know, all those sports sort of came together, and so those were the main sports that I played, and like I played from my school, Mm -hmm. and um, and then after I came here to Canada in two thousand two. Uh, Mm -hmm. I played for my school in cricket um, Mm -hmm. and tennis and then soccer I tried out and I made the team and then I had to quit because it had uh, pretty much an identical schedule with the cricket team Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I had to choose and uh, the cricket team was really good and Mm -hmm. I figured I had a better chance of like winning something with the cricket team so I was like that's fine <laughs> no no
1: I, I actually i don't know if most like i actually uh, i lived in new zealand so i know cricket pretty well actually okay it cool matches and i went to a couple tests there when i lived there so uh awesome. it's a fun sport i really like it it's uh um yeah i somehow got really into uh the 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 test matches i love oh wow it. yeah yeah i know um i don't know how i did it but when i was 13 15 when I lived there, uh, I loved watching it and kind of going on the bike and doing homework and stuff. I don't know. I'm sure it's much more fun to play, but uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, I loved playing the game, and then like I played through university as well. Like I, I was mm-hmm. playing club level, um, and then was like kind of on this path to like potentially play for Canada and stuff like that. Oh, wow, Okay. Um, but it's really interesting that you got into test matches because usually, uh, I know. You know I, it, Fans who are like really new at a later age, they kind of, you know, get into the T20 or like the one day game first and like tests. It's like all five days. How do people do it? That type of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I I found it really kind of
1: kind of like baseball, obviously much longer, but there's kind of a patience to it and kind of a I found it more interesting that way. It felt more tactical, but
2: uh, yeah. And the one thing I always say is like sports in general can mimic life. But mm-hmm. test cricket for me is probably the closest to life in that, you know, mm-hmm. it is spread out and you are going to have like ups and downs, ups and downs. And then, you know, you don't necessarily win or lose at the end of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like some days you're just happy to get through with a draw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: That That's the one thing I didn't like about it was if you got rained out, it just,
2: it yeah, just, the rain is that, frustrating. That's,
1: that's I thought like, I don't mind if it's five days and we can't, do it but uh, anyways yeah
2: no I'm with you on that
1: yeah um just to kind of move so you just mentioned how you played obviously tennis and cricket and some soccer as well when you were growing up did you kind of like when did you kind of first uh,
2: think you might pursue a kind of a career in sports journalism that didn't happen until much much later okay. because I think the way I was raised it was always to see sports as a hobby mm-hmm. and so um, you know, as a little kid, you like dream of different things, like <laughs> lifting the Wimbledon trophy and like playing uh, in a world cup and all that stuff. But, um, uh, it was always looked at as a hobby. And so like education was how you built your career and that type of thing. So I went to, uh, UFT for economics actually. Okay. And, uh, after I graduated, I worked in finance for about five years. Um at about year three and a half, I realized that this wasn't what I wanted to do (laughs) for the rest of my life. Yeah. So um I obviously I always had this passion for sports and um I did have a passion for writing about sports. Mm -hmm. And so I had started my own blog and I had reached a point where I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to genuinely answer the question of whether I could make it or not in the sports journalism industry, if I didn't go all in. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I quit uh, the finance industry and just like focused on writing. And uh, I went back to uh, Centennial because okay. they had a one-year program in sports journalism. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I studied that uh, got an internship at Sportsnet. And that's how I was there for a bit, okay, wow. and then the athletic stuff came along, and then Yahoo, and here we are now. Wow. So when did when did you start at Sportsnet, and was that kind of did that feel like? How Sports. did that to
1: get your kind of start in the industry?
2: Yeah, so the way that Centennial program works is there's two semesters and then the internship, oh. or it's like two and a half semesters and then the internship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my end goal was always like, you got to land that internship, right? Yeah. So whatever I could do those first two and a half semesters to create an impression I was doing. Um, and then, yeah, fortunately got in with the Sportsnet digital team mm-hmm. and it's a three month internship. So just uh, tried to minimize mistakes and mm-hmm. like show that I could help as much as I could. And they were happy with me and they kept me around um, mm-hmm. and, and Uh, and what kind of
1: stuff were you like were you making content were you editing what kind of stuff were you doing so
2: initially you're mainly editing Mm -hmm. um if there's like small breaking news and stuff like that you would make sure you got the breaking news out and you'd have a quick one-liner on it Mm -hmm. and then you'd fill it out later or someone else you know Mm -hmm. If it's, if it's big NBA news, then it it usually be like the main NBA editor who then like writes out the story and whatnot. Uh, So yeah, it was mainly like very news desky and just like editing stuff that comes in and just making sure all the latest news is up on the site. And then as you gain that trust, you know, you can make pitches and Mm -hmm. they'll approve some, they'll reject some and you just kind of go from there.
1: And was it kind of linear? Like, did you feel as though kind of you got in, built trust and then kind of went up? Yeah.
2: So um, in terms of the trust and being able to do more work for them, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of my position, that was the same. So mm-hmm. um, I got more responsibility and stuff like that. But in terms of positions and moving up, that was always, you know, job availability as it is in this yeah. industry is <laughs> pretty yeah. uh pretty low at the best of time. So um there, there wasn't really jobs to move into. And then you know uh it ironically there was a job that I wanted that I applied for and mm-hmm. at the same time uh Yahoo came with their offer. Okay. And yeah. and that was mm-hmm. much more uh, of what I wanted, where I was gonna be get, uh, I was gonna get to work with Will, um, yeah. as sort of this dynamic duo right. and cover and then, the championship season. And and okay, I was gonna ask when was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great.
1: And yeah. I think you wrote a bit for the Athletic that year. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So it it, it happened. It all happened pretty quickly because I would have started that sports internship around november of 2017 mm-hmm. and then i was and then i was there for a year and then that the beginning of the 2018-19 season was when i got in with the athletic and then a bit later the yahoo offer came and yeah <laughs> um i guess just to kind of
1: kind of wrap this up a little bit just about your career i, I kind of wanted to know I know looking at your LinkedIn, you kind of, you mentioned that you're a self-starter and I, I just wanted to know what kind of advice would you give to, to young journalists coming up?
2: I would say uh, number one above everything is get your reps. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what, I think uh, it's nice to say, Hey, uh, you know, you should never work for free and, um, but I think that is still currently the reality of the industry. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that we can wish for and hope uh, that we're different. But uh, if you can't get that paid opportunity, that shouldn't stop you from getting your reps in, putting your content out and showing what you can do, because yeah. that can go a long way. Um, for me, uh. When I had left the finance industry and I was going all in with my blog, that was a huge blessing in disguise because I had this blog that no one was reading except like my close friends and family. And there were all these mistakes that I got to make that once that opportunity came with Sportsnet, you know, I wasn't making right. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if I had made those mistakes during my internship, they probably wouldn't have kept me on. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, in the past, it might have been enough to just be a good writer or just be a good podcaster. I think now we're at a point where you've got to show that you can do uh, different things, right? Ideally, if you can write well, uh, podcast well, uh, have good video hits, all Mm -hmm. of that together, then... Uh, you're putting yourself in a really good position.
1: Yeah. No, no. I I just to kind of like, not that I'm nearly at your stature, but I know I started this podcast, I think 20, like uh, February, 2021. And I feel 10 times better. And I did kind of the same thing. I just did it with friends and they weren't necessarily the best podcast. They weren't terrible, but I felt as though like compared to like now I feel so much more confident and, Um, kind of feel I understand how like a podcast works Um, I wish I had your ability of writing but uh, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah no so uh, I definitely understand that so um, I just now just want to transition a little bit to what you've been covering lately and I I read your article uh, in Complex about Bianca Andreescu and I just wanted to know how that kind of um, piece came together and what the process was like to write that story.
2: So, yeah, with this story for Bianca, one thing with Bianca I've been tracking is just sort of her patience through dealing with the adversity that she's had to deal with, whether it's Mm -hmm. the physical injuries, the mental health stuff that she's been coping with. And so um, I looked back on the last uh, National Bank Open and watch yeah. some of her of her interviews from that, and right from her first interview, uh, here, uh, it was just night and day, mm-hmm. and so that's what sparked my curiosity. Um, one thing that I will say uh, that comes off in this story, um, that I would again advise to anyone looking to make it in the industry is whatever you're curious about know that if you are genuinely curious and passionate about that question or subject, there will absolutely be others who are just as curious or passionate Mm -hmm. about it and want to know about it. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to question yourself uh, in terms of your curiosity and be like, Oh, but is this something the public wants to know about? Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And so that was something uh, that I learned, uh, fairly quickly being in the industry Uh, and so that's something that i would share as well and so yeah that was something that i was curious about and so uh i had asked her about that and then um you know you you just sort of track the timeline and then you see you know the coaching change uh the you know the strength and conditioning coach come in and all of that so you just try to understand how all of that comes together and how it's changed things
1: I I thought when I read it I really thought how much it touched upon mental health and I thought um because it talks about her meditating and um kind of being with her family more and focusing on herself um and I think uh, my kind of question to you is how, what do you find or what do you think the role is as a as a sports journalist now with mental health being so much more prevalent in the discussion how What do you think the role of a a journalist is to cover athletes with mental health or in
2: that kind of scope? So I think the role of the journalist, regardless of the subject, is to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes journalists go in with preconceptions and they want to tell this angle or this version of the truth that they believe is true mm-hmm. uh, and so I think the more we get away from that as a collective um the better I think that uh there are times where you can see in interviews where some journalists almost treat uh that opportunity to interview an athlete as this sort of adversarial interaction yeah. And that is something that definitely frustrates me. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe that was something that was tolerated in the past. But I think because of the player empowerment that we've seen, um, maybe more so in certain leagues than others, uh, athletes are more in tune with that stuff. And when they you know, sense the BS, they cut it out. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, th- I just
1: when you when you mentioned that, I thought about um, Bian- uh, obviously Bianca Andreescu, but Naomi Osaka, especially just in the game of tennis and it becoming more prevalent. And um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's um, especially also, I think um, I don't know how you found it uh, going from obviously during the pandemic covering sports, but it going when people were um, obviously uh, uh, what's the right word? uh, quarantining, sorry. Um, yeah. and obviously the effects that had on people's mental health and athletes. So I think, um, it's definitely tough, but I think you're right. I don't think it should be adversarial unless that kind of it's brought upon, I guess, but, uh, otherwise it, it shouldn't be. Um, I guess I just wanted to kind of move forward a little bit to the retirement of Roger Federer. And obviously it's, uh, a huge change in the game of tennis, um, obviously as well, Serena retired. I, I was fortunate to to watch one of her matches, which was pretty crazy. And I just wanted to know how you like, there's a clear generational change in tennis happening. And, and I really wanted to focus on Federer first, just because it just happened. Um, I, where do you see Federer in the all-time rankings in men's tennis? And when you judge the best players of all time, Is it purely on majors or do you find
2: it to be more than that? So I'll answer the second question first. I do think it's definitely more than majors. I think, you know, whether it's the consistency of, you know, how long you've been number one, how long you've been in the top five, all, all of that stuff I think matters. I think your performances in master's events, I think that's something that is still a huge missed opportunity for uh, tennis as a whole in terms of how they sell Masters events to casual fans. And right. absolutely, you know, casual fans need to look at more than just the slams. Like those Masters events mean so much to the players. And so they should mean just as much to the fans as well. And so I think that's something, you know, the nine Masters uh for the men is something I definitely look at when I look at the best years that Roger or Rafa or Novak have had, I don't just look at oh how did they do in the four slams. I look at uh the masters, I look at the ATP finals, um and assess it that way. And so uh having said all that I do think that uh Novak has surpassed Rogers uh on-field uh, accomplishments or on-court accomplishments. Um, I think between Rafa and Roger, it's really interesting because mm-hmm. one thing when I look back on their head-to-head, and that's one thing a lot of people point out, right, is that Rafa has the head-to-head. So why would you say that um, that Rafa hasn't surpassed him or that it's even close? And the reason I say it's close is because of how infrequently they've met outside, uh, of the French Open, mm-hmm. and the Slams, right? And so you look at the fact that they've never played at the U.S. Open, right? Yeah. Those, I didn't even those, think about that. Yeah. Th- those those peak years uh, of Roger, you know, you know, where he won five straight U.S. Opens, I'm sure he would have loved to play Rafa there, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. um, and and so. Wimbledon they they've only had what was it the the three meetings uh possibly four yeah they
1: met they played recently like 2019 or 18
2: yeah or so they, they played in the semis there and then yeah. there's the two finals that they played as well i think uh, it was three finals i think it was
1: 06 07 and then nadal 108 if i'm not mistaken
2: the, oh you know what you are right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 so um so when you look at all of that, like Rafa has the head-to-head in Slams, if I'm not mistaken, ten to four, mm-hmm. but six and O is at the French Open. Yeah. yeah. So we know Rafa absolutely on clay, he's the god, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> can't yeah, yeah, be touched. Yeah. But I think w- if you were to look back and say, oh, they've played six times on this one surface, and the other three Slams, just eight times combined yeah. something's a little off there yeah. right rafa has never in his career has never missed the french open yeah.
0: yeah yeah
2: but he's been injured for these other events uh yeah. and he's at times where he's had the early exits as well right wimbledon he had that extended stretch i think uh, it was a four year stretch where he didn't, he, he, he didn't get past the fourth round Yeah, so um those are things where if rafa were to get to that point quarters uh, semis more likely semis and finals where he was playing them then what would the head-to-head look like mm-hmm. right like roger and novak especially of late you know they've kept getting deep enough where they play rafa in the semis or the final uh of mm-hmm. the french open and so they're putting themselves in that position to <laughs> and they're taking the l yeah. Um and so I feel like that part of it kind of gets missed, right? We miss the stuff that doesn't show, right? Like stats only shows you what's happening. <laughs> I,
1: I always I, I always thought about this in terms of the Feder Nadal debate, is um that Federer hit hit uh Nadal at the supremacy of Nadal on clay, right? And I think how many kind of Roland Garroses would a Federer won if Nadal wasn't like like if you look at that kind of what stretch like 06 to maybe 2011 ish, like yeah. it's just on like, you couldn't even touch him. Not that he hasn't won since, but, <laughs> but they've become, I feel like over the years he became a bit less dominant. Right. Yeah. And I just see that as kind of like Novak kind of hit him at the end a little bit, still super dominant. But um, I think the, what I always think about is kind of the age range. Between right. Them. And
2: uh, I find with, I think so, that's where the important thing to remember is the age difference between Roger and these two. Yeah. So <clears throat> a little plug, I'm actually writing. Okay. Uh, Something that's looking at these three mm-hmm. and just co- all these different comparisons. So some of these stats that I'm referring to is w- what I've dug up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And I do believe that <clears throat> in tennis, the generation's, sort of come in every sort of f- five-year block mm-hmm. and so while roger rafa and novak are obviously rivals i don't think that roger is from the same generation as rafa and novak like mm-hmm. rafa and novak are uh 86 and 87 born federer was born in 1981 i believe yeah yeah i think that's right yeah yeah and so uh you know the same way that uh LeBron James and Paul Pierce can be rivals because they played each other so many times in the postseason. You wouldn't ever say that they're from the same generation. No, yeah, yeah, that's a really good comparison.
1: Um, I love the <laughs> I love the NBA uh, comparison, but I, I I totally agree. Like, I think it would be obviously much more fair to to you know put Andy Murray in that. Conversation. I I don't think he's the same age as Djokovic. I'm not sure, but he is. uh, So that kind of makes sense. And obviously, you look at his career; he almost in any other era would have been probably close to ten slams. Yeah, presumably, right. And so that's the kind of interesting debate I think about. Kind of who's the best? I, I, I know it's my bias, but I always, I still feel Federer just overall. If you put him in his prime, probably is the best. But for me, I think Djokovic kind of that 2015 might be the highest level of tennis ever when he won the um what is it? Golden slam. I forget. There's always a name for it, but when he won he,
2: all four in a row. Uh so they they call it the the nole slam, the Definitely. same way they called you know Serena when she won her four in a row uh the Serena mm-hmm. slam because it's not the calendar slam he didn't win all four in the same year right like he won the he won Wimbledon and US in 2015 and then he won Australian and French. Yeah I remember
1: I remember him losing to Query in 2016
2: just like in such yeah. a crazy yeah 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 um so no I'm I'm with you I think 20 that stretch from 2015 to 2016 Novak just seemed untouchable. Mm -hmm. Um and again when you look back at the masters events as well, he was winning pretty much all of them. All of them, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like what
1: and he was still in the prime of Nadal. Like Nadal would have been what 28, 29. Yeah. It's not as though he wasn't hitting kind of a counterpart at at the same time.
2: Yeah. And I believe during that stretch, he had created the largest ever gap between number one and number two yeah um, and so I believe Andy Murray was number two at the time, and Novak had like more than double his points, yeah in the a t p yeah yeah, so um oh man uh, um, so
1: just to kind of my zoom's kind of acting up, so it's saying I have to upgrade so anyways i'll I'll figure it out so um <laughs> i just to to move on to to Canadian tennis a little bit, um I wanted to know kind of how you see the game, like I wanted to basically ask you uh, with Layla and Bianca doing very well recently in the women's game and obviously Dennis and Felix doing very well in the men's game, although maybe not the best years this year, who do you think kind of will have the best career? I think that's kind of a question I've been thinking
2: about um, kind of for, for Canadian tennis. Best year in 2023, I will go with Bianca Andrescu.
1: Okay. And can I kind of have a reason as to why?
2: So, with Felix, I would say that I think he's going to have a very good year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just think that this might be the last year of Novak and Rafa really going at it. Okay. Uh, And so I, I still think I know Alcaraz won the U S open and a lot of people are saying this is the changing of the guard and the new, the the next, next, next generation is here, Mm -hmm. but I do feel that it's (laughs) a couple of years away from this being uh, Alcaraz's kind uh, of, show <laughs> yeah I yeah, know yeah, I get that yeah I know I I feel with
1: Alcaraz I, I guess we can touch upon it a little bit I what I really just think is so great about him is his mentality right like mm-hmm. he obviously has probably the best game right now in the world other than maybe Djokovic but just the way he won that center match the way he won um, a bunch of uh, you know, against Tiafo, even against Rude right like he was kind of it was a bit worrisome in that third set. So um, I just, I, I, I feel like he could def, I think he's obviously the next generation, but at the same time, uh, I think I feel like he could be one of those guys like Federer, Nadal and, and Djokovic. I don't know what you think about that,
2: but um, I definitely feel like that could be the case for him. He definitely feels like the next great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to set this impossible standard that, oh, because Roger and Rafa and, and uh and, and Djokovic all won 20-plus, mm-hmm. that now anyone who falls short of that isn't a great. Yeah. I think, you know, if you win 7-plus, 8-plus, like, you are an all-timer. Yeah. Right? Like Agassi won eight. Yeah. And I don't think anyone looks at him and says, oh, that's not an all-time great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Not at all. So, and- so I would say that with Alcaraz, you know, I definitely see him as a multi-slam winner. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see him winning more than five. And then what he does beyond that, uh, we'll wait and see.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. but sure. I
2: know. But I will say if, if he somehow ended up with like less than four or five, that that would be a disappointment based on what we've seen so far. Yeah. I feel like maybe the over under might be like kind of, if you're being really
1: kind of sports booky might be like 10, maybe if that makes any sense yeah. you have to take in like injuries and who knows what kind of happens. Maybe there's another Alcaraz in five years. Right. Right. Something like that. But yeah, I feel like that's maybe the safe over under if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah. Nine and a half sounds like a good number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And just to
1: kind of continue the discussion about kind of Canadian tennis, and you mentioned Bianca, and you thought, like, she'd have the best year. Is there kind of a player that you think, like, do you feel that Dennis and Felix, they've kind of been very wobbly recently um, in different ways? Do you, like, how do you kind of see their games right now?
2: Uh, You can take whichever one you want to start, but yeah, yeah. So I think... With Dennis, the thing that I find frustrating is that he has not sort of matured his game. Like The same weaknesses that we identified three, four years ago are still the same weaknesses now. Mm -hmm. And he still seems like that kid who, when he gets on a hot streak and he's lining up the ball exactly you know, the way he wants to, then he's going to be tough to beat. And I think he made a good decision to team back up with Mikhail yeah. Yuzny. Yeah, I yeah. saw him at the the open and I I, I actually watched his
1: first round match. And again, it was, I got there midway through the second set. He had lost the first set badly. and And just kind of when he brought it all together, he was winning. And when he wasn't, he wasn't,
2: right? And it was just, yeah. just as simple as that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so with Felix, I feel like every year we've seen a progression in some aspect of his game, and especially the serve. Like, that was such a critical component of his game that he needed to improve.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, And so I feel like he has taken that uh, up a notch. I think there's some of that mental aspect that he needs to continue to improve i think he's made strides in terms of uh his mental toughness and uh how he can work his way through matches like i thought when he beat uh sinner C- in cincinnati i mm-hmm. thought that was really encouraging to sort of uh come back from that hole that he was in and turn it around to win his first atp title that was a big deal as well so I think there are these very encouraging signs, but then he's had these lulls where he has these defeats that you can't really explain. No. And again, I go back to when you look at the guys who are consistently at the top, and obviously, again, it's the big three that you talk about the most, mm-hmm. they know how to win with their B and C game, Yeah, sometimes even D game. <laughs> uh. And uh, that's something Felix has to figure out where sometimes you see that he doesn't have that A or B game and you you can see it in his face. that yeah. Like, oh my God, I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where even showing that to your opponent is a bad thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I guess just, uh, I don't know if
1: you've been watching or following the Davis Cup, like it's literally on right now. Um, yeah, he'll
2: be taking and, on Alcaraz.
1: Yeah, he's about to... Uh, is playing uh, Batista Agu in a, in a third set right now. But um, I just wanted to know how you, for that match today, just kind of what your thoughts on... I mean, by the time this comes out, we'll we'll know the score. But um, do you think that's a very kind of... Like almost a measuring
2: stick match for him? Kind of just see where he is, where his game's at? So the one thing I'm curious about with, with this match is whether... Alcaraz might be a bit fried. You mm-hmm. know, it's a lot to go through, you know, to win your first Grand Slam and all the media obligations that come with that. And so I wonder if he's going to be uh, a bit overcooked mm-hmm. for this one. And maybe that gives Felix a- an edge. So, and I will say, you know, I don't know if the Davis Cup means as much to this generation as maybe it did 20 years ago. Yeah, no, but he's he is playing it so that yeah, he is playing it, which is significant. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wouldn't use this as a measuring stick match, is basically what I'll say. It's it's an important match, but I think in terms of assessing Felix next year, you know, I just don't want to see uh those in you know inexplicable losses, right. and I,
1: I find we've we've exchanged about this. I find it's not just that he loses to someone he shouldn't lose, but there doesn't seem to be kind of a like a little fight at the end, or I felt that especially obviously the rude match at the Rogers Cup was just terrible, but there wasn't even a kind of oh, I blew I'm down for love, double break, but I fight it back to kind of four three and then lose 6-3 because I ran out of time obviously there's no time in tennis but you get my kind of my point and yeah. again Draper at the U.S. Open again like it was he just got broken once he never broke yeah and that's the thing that worries me is more there needs to be that kind of ability to fight back a little bit even if you'd lose with the B or C game but the kind of wound up and and i don't know how you think about this but do you feel he should be almost a bit more emotional on court just to kind of rev himself up um i know Rounich back in the day he was very similar where and i was a big fan because i i'm tall and not super athletic and big forehand big serve so uh uh is that kind of something you think you think
2: is important yeah i've borrowed the greg popovich quote before uh, with the i need some nasty yeah (laughs) i think think, uh felix could definitely use a bit of that um and you know i think Shapo has some of that i think when we talk about his potential like you see it in those big matches where he does get up for them and you know he kind of embraces and enjoys that big stage uh and so with felix you know maybe there are those moments where <clears throat> let's be honest even at the australian open where once medvedev seemed to have, have had made his adjustments there wasn't and felix didn't have that counter yeah right like he should have won that match yeah we excuse it because you know medvedev is so great on hard courts and uh, Felix is still learning. He's still got a bit of time before like he really needs to show what he's about. And so we say it's okay, but at the end of the day, he should have won that match. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: I, th- I think he would have been the final. I don't know if he would have beaten a but I think yeah. it would have been CC pass who he actually plays pretty well against. And right in, in that form, I, I think I-, I completely agree. I think the one match where I felt that's perfect. Great. It was the Nadal match. I don't know how you felt about that, but I thought, like, it, still when Rafa played his best, you could kind of tell he was a bit better than Felix. But Felix, like, especially winning that four set and being competitive in the fifth, I thought that was a really kind of pivotal moment. And then since then, it's just been a lull, it feels like. So it's just a weird, I find him so frustrating and a great guy. I just mean, yeah. Uh, he's it's just it's frustrating so do, i guess just to 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 kind of wrap up this this part where do you kind of th- what do you think is kind of a i guess what do you expect from felix and dennis next year on on the on the tour
2: i think realistically felix should be setting a goal of being in the top five next year mm-hmm. you know assuming you know for if you assign four spots to uh, Novak, Rafa, Alcaraz and Medvedev Yeah, mm-hmm. Felix should be saying that fifth spot is mine
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so whether it's uh, a Sitsipas or a Sinner or mm-hmm. a Zverev that he's going up against he should be looking at those guys and saying absolutely I'm better and I, I think that's something that we need to see next year is the belief like I would say in the case of someone like Francis Tiafo, like what was so impressive when he beat Rafa was the fact that even when Rafa had those moments where he seemed, and even the crowd seemed to be like, oh, okay, Rafa's getting into this thing now. Tiafo was like, no, I'm going to win this match. Yeah, yeah. And that is, is such a big component of this. And so yeah. next year, whether it's, Alcaraz, whoever it might be, Felix needs to go in with the belief that he's better than them, that he can beat them.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: No No. matter what the set score is at any stage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think for Dennis, just to kind of, to, to go to that, I think the recent form since kind of Canada, I think has been like better. Like you, you, I feel he's been playing kind of top 10, 20. I agree. And I think it's just for him, it's almost the opposite of Felix in terms of attitude. I think that's successful for him. It says, like, I know he's playing well when he's just hitting rally balls. It's the weirdest thing I find. He's just like, okay, I'm just going to be consistent, get into the point. And then obviously he's big enough to, or his shots are big enough, sorry, to move the player around, get winners, but he'll feel comfortable and, I, I think that's the biggest key is just play consistent and then like he's fearless in a good way, but it's also kind of his his worst uh, enemy at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah no, I think you, you said it perfectly. Like, hey, when you're on that hot streak, absolutely ride it. Enjoy it. But don't be looking for it. Like when you're not in it, just embrace that too and mm-hmm. say, okay, I just got to grind here. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, and I was really upset about his his loss to Rublev. It was, it was, but he played well. Like I, I, I think, and he fought. And again, that's yeah. the thing you were mentioning earlier that he kind of has that you kind of want a bit more from Felix. So, anyways, I, I, I want to transition a little bit to to uh, the Raptors. Um, I actually just recognized you from covering. I think it was the men's national team for North pole hoops last summer. I think that's when I first kind of, okay. Yeah, um, So I just, uh, I wanted to know kind of uh, firstly, I know you t- were on the will lose show about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. And you mentioned that you thought the Raptors this year would be a 50, 55 win team kind of, that's what you expect. <clears throat> and I, I just wanted you to kind of
2: elaborate on why and, and kind of how you see
1: the team going into this year.
2: So for one thing, uh, they pride themselves on defense. And so I have a lot of belief in those teams. And so when you look at the first couple months of last season, there was a lot of teaching that was going on because it was an extremely young team, new faces in the rotation, uh, and you saw a lot of big mistakes, right? And that reflected in their defensive rating, all of that. You look at their numbers, pretty much since the start of the new year or December 29th, December 31st, whatever it might be. And they finished the season 34 and 17, if I'm not mistaken. They were uh, in about the top six in defense. uh, And it's the offense that needed work, right? It was pretty much just get the ball to Pascal. (laughs) Yeah. And get Fred get Fred in transition on those those threes and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I look at the fact that they were on uh 34 and 17 is pretty much uh a 52 plus win pace. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at that, when I look at the fact that they were on that pace with a Fred Van Vliet who is struggling with injury, with an OG Ananobi who barely played uh after the all-star break, it, it was either six or seven games that he played after the all-star break. Yeah. Uh, And And Fred was banged up. Exactly. Yeah. He shot around 24, 25% from three after the all-star break. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I take those two factors and say, okay, if they can be healthy for the whole season, um, the additions of of auto Porter jr. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope that Precious Achiuwa starts. I think that's the best yeah. way for the Raptors to go and have Gary Trent Jr. come off the bench. That's obviously going to be uh interesting. An interesting conversation to have with Gary. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's a way to sell him on it as well yeah. in terms of being a sixth man and providing that spark off the bench. And so uh you know you've got that young around for a whole season. This is Pascal's first off-season uh, you know since 2019. Fully healthy, too. Fully healthy. uh. So I think he's going to come back an even better player. And so for those reasons, my expectations going in are that they'll be a 50-win-plus team. team. And wh- one of the other notes I made on Will Lou's podcast is about, you know, how they underachieved against sub-500 teams. Yeah. The Detroit. I, I know Will Lou, <laughs> but
1: Detroit, I... Um, yeah yeah i even went down yeah. the, the championship year and, and watched them in detroit and they lost and they were with anyways that's not the point but uh if they can just and the the worst thing is detroit's getting better right so uh, yeah that Dwayne casey voodoo <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh no i i actually i i, I agree with you i think My only kind of, not worry, but it's not that I don't think they're a 50-win team in terms of, I think, everything you mentioned, they should be a top five or six defensive team. Again, the problem is, where do they get that half-court offense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, and I'll want touch upon it a bit later with Scotty Barnes and stuff like that. Um, My question to you a little bit is with, obviously, the Cavs adding Mitchell recently and just the East being so deep. Is that kind of... Where do you see them in the standings um, this year? And that's my kind of worry, I guess, about the 50 to 55 win team. is just the East is so deep. You don't have any kind of Detroit. I mean, that's a bad example,
2: but uh, yeah, bad teams. Yeah, so I think the one interesting thing to note with uh, these games against sub-500 teams if you look at seasons past where the Raptors have been really, really great, um, they've got, they've played almost somewhere between 38 to 40 games against sub 500 teams. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, uh, uh, if you look at the last season, it was down to about 32. Wow. Okay. So there's less of the bad teams available. Right. And so uh, does it continue to trend that way? I think That's where the play-in tournament has helped. Mm -hmm. And so you get more of these competitive teams. But I also think there's going to be a bunch of bad teams this year. I do expect the Wizards to be really bad. Um, uh, The Magic, the Pacers, uh, the Hornets. Yeah. uh, And then you look over at the West as well. You know. OKC, the Rockets. uh, Burrs. Spurs, you look at the Blazers, uh, we don't really know what's going to happen with that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they tried to appease uh Damien Lillard with some wings, and we'll see how that plays out. But yeah. I don't expect much from them either, so I still think there's enough of the bad teams around, uh, and the one thing that you're right in wondering about is can they sustain the performance that they had against plus 500 teams. Yeah. They were very good against plus 500 teams yeah. and so sustaining that to me is more of a question mark than hey can they be better than they were last year against sub yeah. 500 teams. Yeah.
1: And I guess just to kind of go back to their kind of the Raptors philosophy, I'm kind of curious like do you believe People like in in Raptor World have talked about this a lot. Do you believe in the six nine Maasai kind of strategy? Where just for listeners who are maybe a bit less aware or unaware of what I'm referring to is that you get a bunch of six, eight, six, nine wings, and you just play amazing defense. You don't really care if they can shoot that well. Um, not that they're necessarily non-shooters and kind of build a team that way. Do you, do you think that can be kind of An effective strategy. I don't mean necessarily that means they win the championship this year or even next. But Mm -hmm. uh, what what are your kind of thoughts on that?
2: So, I would I feel that that should not be confused with, um, you know how they want the finished product of these six, eight, six, nine players to look. Okay, I think they're okay with having that be the base they not even okay they definitely want that to be the base that 6869 with you know 7 foot plus wingspan um and then is able to switch over and defend multiple positions uh that is definitely what they want as the base to build from <clears throat> but they are absolutely looking to build their shooting mechanics and all of that and they have uh, a track record in doing that, right? Okay. Um, and so I think that's where you'll see it come along. I mean, even with Precious Achua, we saw it come along. Um, Crazy. I, I, <laughs> I, It was so weird. I,
1: I, All of a sudden, I went from don't, don't, don't to shoot it,
0: right? Like, <laughs>
2: yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think they believe that they can develop those aspects. And then I also believe that because that is the most in demand sort of uh body prototype Mm -hmm. they feel like acquiring as many as of those as possible first and then using whatever's left over on a seven footer on a point guard whatever it may be they're comfortable with going that way Yeah. yeah and so i think Some people, even after Christian Coloco was drafted, were like, and watching him were saying, oh, how did this guy drop out of, you know, even the top 20, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And for me, the way I looked at it was all these other teams don't have enough wings. And so that was still a priority for them in the draft. And so you you saw all these wing players go, whereas the Raptors have set themselves up so nicely now where they can say, okay, a rookie contract is a perfect way to address the center position yeah. because we don't want to commit 20 million to that position. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I, I think that's a fantastic point. Honestly, I, I never thought about that. I I always just think about it as there's a lot of dumb teams in the NBA. Uh, does, <laughs> that's maybe a bit too strong a yeah. word, but it's kind of like the Bill Simmons thing that there's a bunch of dumb right. teams. But uh, I, I, I think, I think they're just so smart and, Um, It'll be interesting to see. I think there'll be a really good team, but um, I want to transition a bit more to the players. But I do think that uh, the the interesting thing, and we talked about it with the KD rumors and stuff like that. um, I guess actually I'll I'll ask this question now. Um, Do you think kind of a guy like there's been a bit of rumors about Shea? And I'm just curious, not necessarily about him, or if you know anything about him, but in terms of a trade with the Raptors, but do you think they're close to that time where they have to put all the chips in or a lot of trips in for a guy like Shea? And what kind of player would you want to be added to this team? Because I, don't, I think we'd probably agree they're not close, they're
2: not really close to being a championship level team. Yeah, I think if the opportunity presents itself, they will be ready. And we saw it play out with the KD situation. Right, player of that magnitude is available. They're going to offer what they believe is a fair offer. At the same time, they are very happy with their core and what they have. And so there's a line that they're not willing to cross. Yeah. That line probably gets pushed a bit further for a guy like Shea, who is so young still, uh, doesn't have an Achilles injury behind him to worry about, you know, those sorts of things. Um and, and maybe kind of drama attached. It, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, exactly. And so you you you're probably willing to put a lot on the line for him. Mm-hmm. And my perspective on Shay has been that how much longer is he gonna put up with OKC's situ- situation? Because if I'm from if I'm in his shoes. And I'm looking at that draft class and I'm seeing Luka Doncic do what he's doing in the playoffs. Trey Young get playoff opportunity. uh, DeAndre Ayton go to the finals. Jaron Jackson. Yeah. So I'm looking at those guys and I'm saying, man, like I want to show that I belong on that stage too. And I belong in those conversations too, right? Like Shea right now, as good as he is, is getting left out of some of these conversations because of the team he plays for. He he probably he like he's
1: kind of Dejounte Murray last year with bad PR kind of like just yeah because he, I mean not that the Spurs were that great but they were at least a, a competitive team yeah right? yeah so well, that's I, a great way to put it yeah so I, I just think in turn I I completely agree I think it'll be interesting to see how Masai and and Bobby kind of approach because there's gonna be another player that's that's coming out right or if you yeah. want to leave. And who they pick and is it a, and is it another wing is it kind of a yeah so uh, it'll be interesting to see um, how, how they kind of approach it. I, I think for me personally, I think a, a big kind of um, part about this year is, is Scotty Barnes and how like how much he grows and or kind of his um, And so I thought I wanted to just ask kind of what you think his ceiling is and, and what do you kind of expect from him this year?
2: So when we talk about his ceiling, are we talking about for this season or in just general, general? In, in, in general? In, in, yeah. 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 I think he is a potential uh MVP candidate. Wow. Okay. I think he's that good. I think he's flat out special. That's part of why I think this team can win fifty plus games this year. Mm-hmm. Um and everything I see from him like screams winning. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. he looks like the type of player that can control games. That seems so like when you watched that first half against yeah, Philly, I was thinking Ryan, the same thing. I was thinking like everything just seemed to funnel so beautifully through him. And the fact that this guy is almost getting a triple double in his first game. And, you know, if it wasn't for the injury, he probably gets it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think that spoke volumes to me. And I mean, we, it, basically reaffirmed what we were seeing especially in the second half of the regular season right i think in that first half we definitely saw some ups and downs um we saw lulls defensively uh and we saw maybe uh you know some of the taking possessions off that Fred VanVleet kind of called out publicly uh and so yeah yeah i think he definitely grew uh, over the course of the second half of the season and And now I think he's going to be like this freight train in terms of like chasing that ceiling. I genuinely believe, uh, I mean, I said this uh, a couple of weeks into the season last year that I believe by the end of his rookie contract, Mm -hmm. he will be good enough to be in all NBA conversations. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, two years from now? Like in three? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm very high on him too I, I think for me it's it's really just how good of a score does he become right is he 20 points a game mm-hmm. kind of bully ball or can he become an iso score it's it's kind of I was going to ask you about OG but I think that's kind of with OG you find well he he still can't really create for himself right and and, and obviously OG is a much better shooter but that's I feel like that's where you take him from he has everything else that's where he's an mvp candidate or if he becomes an adequate shooter adequate off the ball shooter yeah. then it's maybe more like all like maybe all nba third team rather than all nba second first consistently if that if that makes any sense
2: Yeah I think that's an extremely valid point I do think the the shooting needs to come along and with him if he can just be a reliable catch and shoot guy, I think that's good enough. And mm-hmm. then if he can build out that mid range isolation scoring, that post up isolation scoring, some of which he already has, like he has beautiful touch around the I, basket. I, I, I just, that uh, just
1: to go off that, I don't understand how he does it. He's turning around kind of, maybe 10 feet away and he's not looking at the rim and I don't know how it always goes in. It's, it's crazy. I, I didn't want to
2: interrupt you, but no, you're absolutely right. Like we're both like picturing the same things, right? Like Mm -hmm. those moves that he has around the basket, you don't expect that from a rookie. And so that's where you see that potential for greatness, that specialness that he has in him. And so it's sort of building out, the rest of his offensive game. And I think he and Pascal complement each other so well. And there's going to be opportunities where, you know, obviously we see uh not enough of it, but we see some Pascal Fred pick and roll action uh and how effective that can be. I could absolutely see with how good of a shooter Pascal is from the corner three, Scotty and Fred running pick and roll, yeah. and Pascal in the corner. Um, and now if you've got OG or auto Porter jr. in the other slots, that's going to be very, very difficult to defend. And mm-hmm. I think if auto Porter jr. Can play 60 plus games, 55 plus even to sit out the back-to-backs, who cares? Um, I think the Raptors will be in a really good place. I, I definitely agree. And, um, I have, I think,
1: I guess my last kind of Raptors question um, before um, we go, uh, just because Siakam and Fred, I don't know if they're the same age, but they're basically the same age, about 28, 29. Um, Do you think for those two players that we've kind of seen their ceilings, like do you think that they can improve dramatically or are they kind of who they are at this point?
2: I think Fred has... Like a few improvements he can make, uh, especially uh as a passer. Okay. And I think operating in the pick and roll, um, he showed uh some good strides last year. I thought, especially one thing that he had added that we saw in the first half of the season that n- kind of went away in the second half, and maybe it was some of that was losing that burst to create yeah. that space was that mid range pull up that he yeah. was going to. Um, And he seemed very comfortable with that in the first half of the season. Um, And so I think if we can see a bit more of that, uh, it'll be good because I think one thing we, I would accept at this point is that he's never going to be a great uh, finisher at the rim. Yeah. Yeah. And so if he's driving to the basket, it's mostly going to be for kickout opportunities and uh, with Pascal, I think he would he has the opportunity to improve around the margins but those margins are what separate as you were alluding to earlier someone being an all NBA third team guy versus second first team Mm -hmm. and so I think over the course of Pascal's career we have asked this question multiple times is this the ceiling is this the ceiling is this the ceiling ceiling?" Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't rule out him getting to that next level as well where he is flirting with you know maybe for a couple months we're talking about him the way people talked about DeMar DeRozan for those couple months in Jan and Feb and he's like in MVP conversations and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and I think Pascal is a better player than DeMar DeRozan yeah it's just about you know maybe getting that level of appreciation for his game
1: yeah no I I think what you said was a great point i I I tend to agree I think could he maybe be a 25 eight and five more than 22 eight and five or I'm just throwing out numbers I think the biggest thing for me is his passing games just got so much better right and yeah I think that's the the biggest thing with the player like that and that's why I'm not that worried about not that I, I don't think anyone in Raptors land is worried about Scotty Barnes but you can tell he has the passing it, it's maybe could he do more pick and rolls and stuff like that but Um, overall that's the thing that Siakam's got so much better and that's why he is an all-NBA player right yeah uh, um, I totally agree I think just to kind of wrap up the the NBA portion I just wanted to know what you thought about the season going forward and and kind of what teams you kind of expect to to probably be at the top and maybe if there's a sleeper that you think people are kind of um, obviously sleeping on
2: I think, you know, the Clippers are going to be a huge threat this season. I think they've made the right additions. I think even, you know, that trade last season, it made them better down the stretch, but it really beefs them up for this season with Powell and Covington um, in the mix. I think when you look at the Memphis Grizzlies having the experience that they had last year and, uh pushing the Warriors, I think that will give them a lot of confidence. I mean, not that they're not already a confident bunch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 that's uh, not their problem, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think they will be a team to watch out for. I get a bad Phoenix, uh, feeling about Phoenix. Yeah. I think there's just so much going on uh, behind the scenes, uh, on see. the roster with the DeAndre Ayton situation. Um, you know, DeAndre's how much Starler. longer... Yeah, exactly. How much longer can Chris Paul keep playing his best? Uh so I feel like we could see a bit of a drop off from them. Uh the Warriors will be the Warriors. Yeah. And so um I think the Mavs will be interesting to watch uh if they can be in that, you know, true upper echelon. I don't know if they're ready to or good enough to win a Western Conference Finals yet. Yeah. Um. Like, definitely, they're good enough to win a round or two, but I don't know if they've made the changes. Like, l- l- losing Brunson at the end of the day is a big deal. Yeah. For, uh, w- when you look at what he meant to that team, and then Christian Wood, uh, will be
1: interesting. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> I think we can leave it at that. Um. And then in the East, you know, I I think Milwaukee and Boston or the top two. And then after that, it, it could really play out anyway. I mean, if I had to bet, I'd probably say Philly has three because mm-hmm. of the upgrades they've made to their bench. Um, wh- Whether it's, you know, Melton, PJ Tucker, now getting Montrez Harrell as well in there. So uh, I think they've made important improvements. And then we have to see how much off season work James Harden has put in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. if I had to pick a team to be third right now, it'd be them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then after that, I really think it can play out anyway. I think Miami's had a bad off season, yeah. um, and then uh, Brooklyn—they're just yeah. That that could be a sleeper, <laughs>
1: but I might want to yeah. on them anyways. If that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm I, not. I, I'm not that as high on Atlanta or Cleveland as some are. Okay. Like, I, I, I do believe the Raptors are better than them. I think Cleveland, I just like
1: Garland and Mobley so much that I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty high on Cleveland. For me, i don't maybe even put them third. I don't like Philly. I just wow. don't trust Harden right now. Um, Now, in the regular season, they have a better bench. So that obviously, I, more for the playoffs, I don't mm-hmm. like them as much. Um, but I think I, I like Cleveland a lot. Again, I think for me... It's, it might be weird to say. I feel like Milwaukee, if they're healthy, are the favorites in the East. I just, I think. I agree. I, I think with, you looked at that Boston series, they should have, they would have won if they had Chris Milton. People don't say it, but it yeah. it's kind of, um, I think that's true. So I, 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 I completely agree. I, th- I think the Warriors will be really good. The Clippers, I just, I will believe it when I see it. I think you're right mm-hmm. what you said on paper. They should be as good as Golden State, but they haven't been healthy for a single playoff round or when they were, they didn't do so well. So
2: (laughs) anyways, I've had you for so long. So I want to just... So one quick thing I just wanted to add with Milwaukee is I think people are forgetting that part of the injury issues they had were because Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton went straight from winning the NBA championship to the Olympics and then back into training camp.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: No, 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 no. now, again you know a bunch of these teams that maybe haven't been healthy this is like their first proper off season in three years
1: yeah I was I was about to say because with the COVID the bubble season and then quick into it and then last summer with the Olympics I think that's an excellent point and I think it'll be a really fun season I think that's like I'm really excited because there's so many good teams there's gonna be a lot of teams tanking for Victor but at the same time like you look at the East, like when are like the Raptors are just going to be playing exciting games all the time? Like even yeah. like Orlando, like they'll be fun to watch or like really like wa- uh, Wagner, I can't say his name and then obviously uh, Paolo and stuff. So well, I just, I just want-, want to call it the AL East. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's another story. Um, I just wanted to end off a little bit about United and then uh, I, I was, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we're both uh, just so people know are united fans, which is a tough life right now uh, with everything going on and I just wanted yeah. to know they obviously had a really they for fans who don't know, they had a terrible first two games and they've kind of rebounded a little bit and and got some money in uh, or some signings in. So I just wanted to know how you think about the team and they have a new manager Eric Ten Hogg, kind of how you feel about his philosophy and the team so far.
2: So I'm a huge believer in Air Ten Hag. Okay. In fact uh so internationally I'm a a Dutch supporter. I know, yeah, that I can you explain that a little bit for us if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so actually uh, my mom has worked for KLM the Dutch airline for yeah. over 30 years. Oh wow. And so when I was a little kid, like she would bring like Dutch memorabilia every once in a while. And I guess I just kind of got attached to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then I mentioned 98 was the first world cup I watched. And so uh, they got to the semis that year and mm-hmm. Dennis Bergkamp scored this incredible goal yeah. against Argentina. And so that just built up my affection to another level. And so I've been rooting for them ever since um, some heartbreaking losses, especially yeah. uh, 2010 and 2014. And I remember that. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where uh my dutch fandom comes from um and so because i believed in eric ten hog so much and liked him so much uh and disliked the glazers i actually didn't want ten hog to come to united okay interesting that's an interesting because i thought it was a bad career move move yeah um and so when he took on the challenge, I was happy uh, that he's at United, but I was also a bit skeptical of you know, how the Glazers would treat him. And I think um, it's been very encouraging to see his philosophy already sort of uh, bringing out some results. But I'm not ready to go into the deep end yet because I feel like I've seen this movie before where the yeah. Glazers have shelled out money in the first year of a manager in the past. But all of a sudden, you know, if you get back into Champions League or whatever it is, I mm-hmm. know second year, that money's not there. Third year, that money's not there. And then they're gone, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I... The biggest thing is I'm enjoying watching them play. I was going to say, <laughs> I, I find
0: them...
1: I, like, they, they'd win under Ali, but you never yeah. felt they had a game. Like they in terms of, they'd be consistent through the right. play, um, and even like yesterday, like they didn't play a great team, but they at least like you kind of the whole time you're like they're gonna win, yeah, right? and even with Ollie, like I found, and they just you never trusted that they could win or
2: they play well, right? Like they play a lot in sports, yeah. so, um, yeah, and uh, and with Ten Hag, like I love that he's willing to make those brave decisions. Yeah. Right. Like dropping Maguire, completely dropping Ronaldo. And it's like, Hey, at the end of the day, it's about my philosophy. It's about how I want this team to play that no one is bigger than the team, which I don't think a manager has been willing to say for a a little while. I can't Um, think of a United manager since Fergie that would have been like that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's a big thing for me as well in sort of setting that precedent again, Mm Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I think you're seeing things fall into place, because if you're a younger player, uh, whereas maybe before you were looking and saying, Hey, it doesn't matter what I do. This player is senior to me and they're going to get the opportunity. Now you see, Hey, if you do exactly what this manager wants, you are going to get playing time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no,
1: maybe a little bit of a Donnie Vandebake kind of vibe with what you just said, yeah <laughs> um, Uh, well, so thank you so much for coming on. I just wanted to know kind of what, um, anything going forward that you are working on. I know you mentioned a little bit about one piece. Is there anything people should kind of, um, expect from you or anything that you're working on?
2: So I'll have like kind of preview stuff for the Raptors coming up, Mm -hmm. building into media day and then just cover the team from there. So really excited for this season. Um, and then beyond that, uh hopefully we'll get to do some type of World Cup coverage uh mm-hmm. when that comes around and try to juggle those schedules and yep. see yep. how that goes. Uh as a cricket fan, uh I know it's gonna intense. be pretty intense because there's the T20 World Cup uh coming up uh you know towards the end of October. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's gonna be an interesting time juggling all of that. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 definitely understand. Um, that's, that's awesome.
1: And, uh, is, uh, I guess just, um, I hope you get to cover a bit of the world cup. Cause
2: I think that'd be pretty cool, especially with Canada. I, I was going to ask, I guess, just what would, you I think t- I'll do like my own content regardless. Like if I don't get any opportunities with, uh, hmm. a major outlet. Um, but ideally, yeah, it'll be with, an outlet. I guess <laughs> just, just to send off if, if the Dutch
1: play Canada, I know it's probably unlikely because of the draw, but when the draw happened,
2: what were you thinking if they played each other what would you do? So, this is I think I would be happy with either outcome. Okay, yeah. I know that's a diplomatic answer. No, no, um, I I understand. But yeah. uh I think one of the reasons I might slightly root for the Dutch still is because I'd see the Dutch as potentially winning the World Cup. Yeah. Right. And I don't think Canada's there yet. No. Um.
1: <laughs> I, like I, I was lucky enough to go to the, the the game they clinched and like it was
2: crazy scenes, but yeah, they're they're not uh, they're not winning the but world. But I mean, Cup. hey, the way the draw is right now. If Canada were to play the Dutch at that point, you would start to hey say why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Is it would it be like the semis or something like that? I,
2: I, yeah, I the draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I think major stakes I would root for Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, you'd say why not? But yeah, in like the building stages, I'd probably say the Dutch because like they'd have more potential yeah
1: well thank you so much for coming on vivek i really really appreciate it uh and and kind of uh helping me um build this new podcast so i really appreciate it and um just so listeners of behind the play know i have two guests coming up in the next week or two so um stay tuned pretty interesting people coming on um not as interesting as vivek though but uh anyways um thanks so much for having me uh for coming on sorry and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, this was great, Alex. I had a great time. So
0: anytime, happy to chat. Thank you so much. And uh, see you guys next week.